Hey, this is Matthew Lilly. Welcome to the Presence Pioneers podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome to today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. We have a special guest, David Slyker, with us today. He is one of the leaders of the International House of Prayer in Kansas City. He's just released a new book called The Nation's Rage, and we're very excited to talk to him about this. Um, if you've ever wondered what's going on in the world, are things getting worse, are things getting better, and how do we respond rightly in the craziness of what's going on in our world right now, uh, that hopefully this episode will give you some perspective on what's happening and what God's doing, what God's not doing maybe right now, and I'm excited to talk to David it's going to be really encouraging, exciting for you guys. Look, if you're new to the podcast, real quick, the Presence Pioneers podcast exists to equip you to host and experience the presence of God. We believe God's presence changes everything. So we provide short little Bible teachings as well as extended interviews and conversations like this from leaders in the worship and prayer movement to help you and encourage you. So be sure to subscribe. We try to release an episode every week, and we would love for you uh, to track with us. You can also visit our website at presencepioneers.org. We've got all the previous episodes up there, all the show notes. You can learn more about our ministry and make a donation up there if you would like to do that as well. All right, David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Appreciate yeah, it's it. A, it's a huge honor. You've been at IHOP in Kansas City for years. I know before that you were a youth pastor. You've been an intercessor. You've been helping lead the university at IHOP, and you're an author, obviously, just released this new book. It's so great to have you. I'm sure there's a lot of things we could talk about today. But maybe we could start first with the fact that celebrating tonight and tomorrow is IHOP's 21st, 21 years of 24-7 prayer with live worship. That's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's humbling. It's sobering. It's exciting. Um, yeah. 21 years. 21 years 21 without years. stopping. That's crazy. I, I, tell the I tell the story. When I first uh, visited, it was 1999, it was October, and they told me, they said, hey, you've got to go check out this prayer meeting with worship. It's been going for a month straight. It hasn't stopped. And I remember it's October of 99. Something going for a month straight was just so bizarre and remarkable. Like, yeah, it's been going for a month straight. I've never heard of a prayer meeting that just has gone on for a month. And so I went and checked it out and fell in love. But, but um it's it it makes me laugh now when you think how novel and bizarre it was that a prayer <laughs> meeting would go for a month and not stop. And now here we are twenty one years later and it's still the prayer meeting is still going. Like it still hasn't stopped. And that's there's that's just bizarre to me. That's amazing. <laughs> it is amazing. It's a miracle. I mean it really is. It's a sign and a wonder for for our generation. And thank you to you and to the leaders and the, the, all those at IHOP who have, who have kept that fire on the altar. We're so thankful for you. I Thank can't you. imagine the impact of the prayers that have gone up, 21 years of 24-7 prayer. I mean, what that's done in the earth uh, is amazing. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. I, I don't know that we can fully appreciate what it means for 21 years of intercession, 21 years of asking for breakthrough and asking for very specific breakthroughs. I mean, we've been specific. We've been praying for missions. We've been praying for cities. We've been praying for justice. 
Yeah. For 21 years, we've been asking very specific things of the Lord, and we've been mixing in worship and adoration and the things that the things that He says in His Word move His heart. And so I don't, I don't know that we can appreciate right now what that means and what that will mean that the Lord would establish that, that the Lord would do it. I think beyond that, the other sign and a wonder that we can't fully appreciate because we're doing it as are you is that there are a people that have done something for 21 years that is as rigorous as asking the Lord for things that he hasn't fully answered and they haven't quit. And so that weak and broken people narrative doing it for 21 years, that it's still going because people are still doing it. We live in an age where if it doesn't happen in 21 days, we're moving on to the new trend. <laughs> uh, and so, so true. Yeah. The Lord is, the Lord is really doing something beyond any of us. That's right. Well, look, some, some people know you, some people may not know you. You said that you got involved. Somebody just mentioned the prayer meeting to you. I think you were a youth pastor, if I read correctly, before yep. you were involved at IHOP. But maybe tell us a little bit about your story and your journey, just to give people a little bit of context here. In, uh, in 1993, um, my little Bible school gets hit with the first wave of what would be about four waves of renewal in the 90s, some more well-known than others. Um, I end up being in the middle of, as a kid from an unsaved home that doesn't have any church background, my my dad was a Vietnam uh, War intelligence officer. My mom was was from Thailand. Thailand. That's how they met. He was stationed there. He was translating uh, enemy transmissions. He had to learn five languages. He had to translate enemy transmissions. That's how they meet. And so I come from an unsafe home. I've got no history, no background, no nothing. The next thing you know, 19 in ministry school, getting hit with the first wave of what would be four waves of the Lakeland, Florida laughing renewal, Rodney Howard Brown, uh, the uh, Toronto blessing. I was two hours south of that. And uh, that was about to break out a year later. And then, uh, Sometime after that, the Melbourne renewal was going to break out and the Brownsville revival was about to happen. And, uh, and I end up being in the middle of all four of those. That's bizarre. When I look back today, just that is like, how did I, how did I go from an unsaved home? I don't know anybody. I have no friendships, relationships. I'm not a networker. And suddenly here I am in the middle of this crazy story of the 90s that would mark our nation. But for me, a different story was unfolding. So here I am. There's this gigantic story called a historic move of the Holy Spirit moving around the nation and the world because the way Toronto would touch the earth. And I'm sitting in the back of the first of those meetings, the, you know, the laughing renewal as the auditorium is beginning to get filled with laughter. And again, I don't have a background in any of this. I don't, I'm looking around going, do you guys know, like, is there a book I missed that you guys know what to do right now? Because it seems like <laughs> their unplanned, spontaneous corporate laughter is exploding like waves in this room, and I don't know what's going on. And the, the people would get healed, people would get set free, cars for a mile down the road, people would walk to the meetings, they went on for weeks, and the meetings would end, the, you know, the, the person goes home, and they, the pastor that was hosting the meetings would turn the lights down in the sanctuary put on guitar music and read the Psalms out loud. And as a 19 year old, I went, that's, I love this. Mm. Cause I'm thinking, cause there was a tangible presence in the room. You could feel it. It was powerful. 
I would sit in the back of the room in the presence of the Lord. You could feel it. There was a sweetness. The, the pastor's reading the Psalms quietly, and I'm just enjoying the presence and the word and the worship, not knowing that that's going to, of course, be my life in the days to come. And he gets to Psalm 27. Never heard that Psalm before. Never read that Psalm before. He gets to Psalm 27 for one thing I've asked, one thing I seek to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze at his beauty, to inquire in his temple. And as he's reading those words quietly with the guitar music, the Holy Spirit falls on me. And I begin to weep and weep and weep. And out of my mouth come words that I'm not thinking. And out of my mouth comes the ache, Lord. Yes, Lord. I go, yes, Lord. All the days of my life, this is my vow. I will dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And the presence lingers on me for a while and lifts. I don't know what I just prayed or committed to. I don't know what it means. But now it's 40 years later. I'm graduating you know, Bible school, seminary. Uh, a man named Bob Sorge is hiring me on to be his youth pastor. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I made that vow. That was a really bizarre encounter. Do I live in the sanctuary? Do I, do I ask to kind of bunk up in the church? I don't, how do you, in a New Testament context, dwell in the house of the Lord? So two years later, Bob and Marcy moved to Kansas City to be a part of the ministry there that wasn't yet IHOP. It was in transition. And they didn't know it. Most people didn't know it. And so they arrive in Kansas City as IHOP is, is being born. It's starting May of, May of 99, you know, 13 hours a day. They come in April of 99. So now in October of 99, I'm going to visit them as some of our dearest friends. They did our marriage, our wedding ceremony, our premarital counseling. They're some of our dearest friends. We're just going to visit because we miss them, my wife and I and our little one. And um, we got one little, little baby at that time. Yeah. She's 21 now. So we, we show up and they're going, oh, hey, by the way, this thing started called IHOP. And it's a prayer meeting, you know, what I said at the beginning. Yeah. They go, yeah, check it out. So I go on a Wednesday night. It's the youth night, the, the church youth group that Mike had pastored for years. They took that prayer set and Mike is leading the prayer set, coaching the teenagers in this new thing called the Harp and Bowl prayer model. Yeah. And I, I'm at the back. There's, you know, 50 teenagers outside being normal teenagers. So I thought, okay, good. Teenagers are still teenagers here. They're not some, you know, they're, you know, they're not in the third heavens. They're just doing what they do. They're flirting and trying to, you know, impress each other. Right. I walk in the room, there's 50 teenagers in the room. I go, oh, okay. I look on the platform, there's, you know, 13 on the platform. They're singing and Mike is helping them. And he says this, he goes, okay, they just prayed. I just prayed something. He goes, you, you're going to sing. And you're going to sing as the voice of Jesus, and you're going to respond as Jesus singing over his church. And then he points to a girl from my youth group. He goes, you're going to be the voice of the church responding. And I thought to myself, I know her. She's 15. She doesn't have a clue what you just said. Yeah. I'm thinking to myself, I don't have a clue what he just said. Like, does anybody have a clue what he just said? And, but they start doing it. And he's going, you know, sing now. And now sing what he just prayed. And, and so I'm watching all this happen, and it strikes me. Just out of the blue, it hits me. I go, this is that. This is the God encounter I had four years ago or whatever it was. So this, yeah, this was 99. So it would have been, it would have been uh, six years ago at that point. I go, this is that God encounter. This is the New Testament context to dwell in the house of the Lord, to be before him, to minister to him, to, to be transformed in his presence. 
But then it also hits me. This is one of the greatest discipleship methodologies I've ever seen to get young people singing the Bible, to get them talking to Jesus and singing in the midst of one another and, and doing team and trying to go somewhere in the presence of God together. I go, this is, as a youth pastor, this is the greatest discipleship model I've ever seen. So not only am I saying, this is what the Lord touched me about in 93. Now I'm saying, I actually, beyond that encounter, want to do this. And now beyond that, every teenager I know should do this. Like this is, I mean, it was all hitting me at once. It was mildly overwhelming. But that started my journey. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. That's awesome. And now, 21 years later, nonstop, 24-7. It's amazing. So you were there you were there very early on in IHOP's history. That's amazing. Thank you again for your faithfulness. Maybe you could share before we start talking about your book, what is, uh, what's maybe one of your favorite things about being part of IHOP? And then maybe what's one of the biggest challenges since being there? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I know there's probably 50 things on each side, but maybe what are some things that come to mind about some of the, the most joyful things and then maybe some of the challenges? Favorite is easy. The favorite is easy. Because, because there, there, there really is this thing, we call it the greenhouse of prayer. There really is this dynamic intersection between Bible and singing, worship, and presence, and, uh, and ministry. There, there's this intersection, the greenhouse of prayer, it's an accelerant. And you go from you know, cultural assumptions, your Christianity is built on your three favorite sermons, and you know, you've got this unstable performance-based heart, and, and it's like when you take Bible, when you take presence, when you take worship, when you take, when you take godly people, and you go somewhere together in ministry to the Lord and to others, it's an accelerant. It stabilizes the heart fast, but then you take that accelerant that stabilizes the heart of a young person, but then you stay with it for 10 years plus, and pretty soon you look around, and there's this quality of friendship that, that I, don't, I couldn't have had. Like, I wouldn't have picked some of my, some of my dearest friends I wouldn't have picked when I was a youth pastor. I wouldn't have said, hey, we're going to do this together. Yeah. There's a certain kind of personality that I gravitate towards. And, you know, a certain sense of humor. There's just, there's certain right. things that I, I kind of gel with. But it's the friends I wouldn't have picked. And it's the things they said yes to in secret. And the things that I said yes to in secret. And we're bonding at the heart level on very different terms than we would have in the natural related to our personalities. And that bonding on different terms and the things we have to overcome to stay with it, the things they overcame to stay with it, the things I overcame in my wife, and the way that that knits you together, the quality of friendships that you end up with, if you stay with this kind of life, you, you, you couldn't make it happen. You can't produce it in your own. You, you can't read the book and apply the principles. Right. Nobody can give you the book that says, here's how to overcome pain and obstacles to stay before the Lord when there's 10 reasons, including financial reasons, to, to bail and do the easier thing. And then suddenly you look up and some of your dearest friends that are bonded at a level that's far beyond the, thing, the conversations, the quality of the conversations, the quality of our family interactions, the quality of our kids' interactions. These are the things you can't make happen apart from a greenhouse of presence and grace and a culture of the word and prayer that isn't because we're so spiritual. We're actually, you know, you actually have the, the quality happens in the midst of our real humanity and dorkiness. Right. <laughs> if anything, 21 years of night day prayer exaggerates your dorkiness. It doesn't exaggerate how spiritual and amazing you are. Where the quirkiness, the humanity, the, 
it's so yeah. real how much we run into. We laugh about how human we are, how dorky we are, but in the midst of it, there's that common reach. Yeah. And and the fact that our kids are interacting on that level and our families can enjoy each other on those terms. I never would have guessed that, you know, as the thing when I signed that revival was the thing. When I'm 27 signing up right. for this, it's like revival and raw and stadiums. And now at 47, 21 years later, it's like, no, it's intimacy and simplicity and it's gentleness of heart and it's meekness. And it's the, it's the tenderness and the mercy of the Lord. And it's his provision of grace and my weakness that gives me a lens to see my friends and my enemies different. And it makes me less defensive. What I thought was about revival was actually about my repentance and the quality of relationships that come out of that kind of 21 years of repentance. Who would have guessed? Amazing. So that's my favorite by far. Yeah. How about the, how about challenges? <laughs> the challenges are significant. Yeah. The challenges are significant because the, uh, I mean, you may be familiar to varying degrees with, with the prophetic storyline that birthed this place. Um, it's, it's a strange thing to be a part of a ministry. And it's not the only ministry of its kind like that. It just, it's what I'm knit to by the Lord's grace. And it's this ministry that had a sovereign beginning. It's a ministry that has a sovereign continuance that has nothing to do with the human beings that are serving it. It's just not a product of man's giftedness. There's a sovereign dimension to the storyline. Because, because it's part of a larger narrative, as you are, as we all are. It's part of a larger storyline that at the end of the day is about 100 million intercessors for Israel and Romans 11 and the salvation of Israel and the, and the transformation of the whole earth. When that domino falls, when the domino of Israel's salvation falls, that's Satan in chains. That's demons driven off the planet. That's the glory of the Lord invading the earth at another level. That's Jesus in Jerusalem. And so the domino of Israel's salvation is one that's beyond anything we can grasp. And when the Lord establishes prayer ministries to that end, there is a commensurate resistance related to demonic rage and related to demonic rage as it relates to human rage, <laughs> what Paul mm. called in 2 Thessalonians, the mystery of iniquity. Mm. I just wrote a book about all this. It's uh, there's the, there's a dynamic of human rage. The more God, the more rage, and the more God, the more demonic rage. Revelation twelve, and so the and so the challenges are considerable because the end game for us all is is not insignificant. Right. We're not trying to get a few more people saved. God is God is setting up the pieces for His end game. And there's, they are significant pieces as a whole. As a ministry, we're just, we're just small and dorky and doing our little thing. You know, I talk about Isaiah 42 as the, this global symphony that the Lord is, is orchestrating. He's the, or, he's the, he's the conductor. Yeah. It's a global symphony. And the prayer movement that we're all a part of, that many that are listening, that's like the string section. That, that's not any one of us are the thing. We're, I, can, I think of IHOP as the one note on one of the violins that somebody is playing and our job is to do our little part. We're not the thing. Yeah. We're part of a violin that's part of a string section called the prayer movement and YWAM and, and crew and others are part of this brass section called the missions movement and, and this orchestra is gigantic and we're playing our little note. But as you know, 
and, and when you're operating at the quality of an orchestral piece at that scale, every little note matters, actually. Mm. Smallness doesn't mean insignificant. The quality of the note impacts the overall quality of the piece. And so even though our part is small, our part matters before the Lord. The conductor hears, and the quality of the piece suffers if we don't play our part. And so for demons, <laughs> demonic rage... All they got to do is to get you to stop playing your note, and it impacts the piece. And so because the song is about the return of the Lord, and because the song is about ultimately the salvation of Israel, the demonic strategy to get us stop playing our, to stop playing our part, and, and what comes against us, because what our little part, what it's connected to, that's the, that's the thing. We can't do false humility. We have to understand that our part is small and not exaggerate ourselves in human ego. But we can't, in the name of not having human ego, dismiss the significance of our part. Demons don't. Good. Right. Demons don't. They just don't. Demons take us more seriously than we do sometimes. And so, so the, the fire of hell is opposed to the end result of what we're contributing to. Therefore, the challenges are significant. Significant. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's a great lead-in to discussing your, your new book, The Nation's Rage. Got a copy of it here. I haven't been able to read through it yet, but been able to get the first couple chapters and skim through it. I think maybe catch some of the, some of the heart of it. So let me start with this, David. So your your book's The Nation's Rage. It made me think of another book I had on my bookshelf called Let the Nations Be Glad, <laughs> and I thought it was a funny uh, juxtaposition to have the nations rage and then let the nations be glad. And so maybe the first question could be, what's going to happen is, are the nations going to rage or are the nations going to be glad? We've got Psalm 2 and then we've got Psalm 67. So let's start with that question. I think maybe that could open up a great Beautiful. can of worms. Are the nations going to rage? Is that where we're going? You know, are things getting worse? Are things getting better? I love that question. Well, I think that's the miracle. The miracle is that it's not like we're suddenly going to skip human process I mean, what's happening in Portland, what's happening in Seattle, the, the, we're, we're not in an hour anymore where people are wondering if rage is a thing. Like, it, we're having a different conversation. Rage is a thing. So now the question is, well, how are the nations going to be glad? And the Lord goes, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> yeah. Because it is both. The nations are going to rage, but they're going to end up glad. Yeah. The, the nations are going to rage, Psalm 2, but it ends up, Haggai 2, he becomes the desire of all nations. And the stunning truth to this story that's unfolding is that the nations are glad as he becomes the desire of all nations without violating our free will in the process. That's the stunning point, is that we're going to look back at a season of concentrated rage. That, that the, I mean, the closer God gets to the earth in one sense, the more he invades with his presence, the the church history, revival history, the book of Acts, all of it tells us the more God interacts with human beings, the more some respond, some repent, some rage. It's never uh, homogenous. It's never some monolithic response. Will the nations only do one thing or will the nations only do the other? And, and, I mean, in one sense, as the nations rage, Psalm 2 Many will rejoice. Revelation 7, many are coming out of the rage of the nations in martyrdom, and they're rejoicing. And so 
even from now until as the rage increases, so will the rejoicing. Isaiah 42, Isaiah 24, I mean, Isaiah 24 is a more pertinent example of rejoicing in the midst of rage. It's, mm. uh, it's just never one thing. The, the glory of the gospel, Song of Solomon 8, 6, the seal of divine love that's stronger than death, the Lord is giving, the Lord is giving us a grace and setting something within us that's stronger than the rage of the nations. And as long as that's true, there will always be rejoicing in the midst of rage. But the idea that there will only be one or the other, that there's only one trajectory, that's actually why I wrote the book. That question is why I wrote the book. Because there's a naivete related to the reality of the human experience that exaggerates one or the other. And so what people are wearied by is the only negative narrative. I think Sam Storm said it in his endorsement that he's weary of hearing about how bad it's going to get. And there's a whole company of Christians that are going, I thought this thing was about hope and victory and the grace of God and his glory. Why am I hearing so much about the negative? Yeah. And so they want one side of the message. Give me the positive side. But then the other group goes, yeah, I appreciate that you want the positive, but you do get what's going on in Portland. You do get what's going on in Washington. You do get what's going on in Moscow. You do get what's going on in the Middle East. Like one of the most oppressive regimes in human history, Iran, is also experiencing one of the most glorious revivals in our recent history. Mm. It's not one or the other. And so in one sense, we get tired of one narrative. And so we go, tell me the positive story. Don't, I only want to hear about the revival in Iran. And, but, but then the other guy goes, yeah, but there really is a, an oppressive regime and they're going to shoot people. Are you going to pretend that's not happening? Whereas the Iranian believer goes, I kind of want both. I kind of want to rejoice in what God's doing, but be real about the fact that my friends are dying. And I need a message that's going to prepare me to rejoice while my friends are dying. We need a message that can bear the weight of the hour we really live in, not the one we want to. And so there's an alarmist narrative that suits, I think, the purposes of some of the purveyors of that narrative. I don't want to be cynical, and I'm not trying to be, but I do think that there's an audience for negative. Yeah. And there's, there's finance and there's support. You know, if you sound an alarm related to the political, it's bad if Biden wins. I think right. there's... I think there's a lot of money to be made and a lot of audience to be gained and a lot of attention to be grabbed by sounding the alarm for what could happen if Biden wins. But then on the flip side, I think there's a lot of audience to be gained that's tired of that. And here's my problem. I'm not looking to gain an audience. I'm looking to tell the truth. Right. I'm looking to be a responsible shepherd to my kids and grandkids. I'm looking because at the end of the day, if I'm just trying to do the positive narrative because it's what people want, or if I'm trying to do the negative narrative because it gets attention, but I'm not with integrity saying it as it is, there's a couple generations that are going to follow. They're going to look back at us and go, what were you guys doing? What were you doing? Your cities were burning and you just kind of wanted to talk positive or you wallowed in the burning and you got tons of attention, but you never talked about grace and glory and hope and, the love of God and where this thing's going? Like, did you, did you equip anyone to actually thrive in the midst of pain and pressure? Did you give them a message that could bear the weight of the hour they really lived in? What were you doing? And so I, I, wanna, I, wanna with, I want with integrity to answer to the Lord, 
that I did my best to acknowledge what is, but also to, to say what I think the Spirit is saying as it relates to what I see in the Word and in history, that, that the most intense news isn't whether Biden wins or not. The most intense problem isn't even whether the economy works or not or, you know, Antifa gets their way. The most intense trouble ahead is God. The issue we all have to deal with is God. He is a way bigger problem than any of the things that are ahead of us over the next few months. And to grapple with that, I think, is responsible mm. and actually prepares us to thrive in the future. Yeah, so good. Great, great answer. What What do you think the... Thank you. What are the... It's <laughs> a hard answer. <laughs> yeah. Well, what, what do you see as the dangers of, of those extremes? You know, what you know, what, what are we avoiding? Because I, I do think there's some danger in buying into the super negative, everything's going bad, hang on till Jesus raptures us. Some of that, yeah. some of that eschatology that was real popular in the, you know, in maybe my parents' generation, that kind of thing. And then in some ways, I feel like a lot of people have swung the opposite direction and it's all, everything's just going to get better, 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 better at least in America and prosperous nations, that's been the message. So what are some of the dangers? I mean, how about I ask it this way, David? What's so bad with just being hopeful and thinking things are going to get better, right? Hey guys, this is Matthew. We'll get back to the episode in just a moment. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider joining Presence Pioneers Premium, our brand new subscriber community. Paid subscribers will get exclusive premium content such as bonus podcast episodes, exclusive articles, early releases, and more. Presence Pioneers will be releasing its first e-course in 2024 with many more to come. And the Presence Pioneers premium subscribers will always have full access to the entire library of online courses. Visit media.presencepioneers.org or click the link in the description to join today. You can become a premium member today for an introductory price of only $5 a month. When the price goes up in the future, as our library of resources grows, you can stay subscribed at the original price. If you've enjoyed our podcast for a while, becoming a premium member is a simple way for you to help us cover the cost of producing this podcast and partner with Presence Pioneers in equipping the church with resources for day and night prayer, prophetic worship, missions, and revival. Visit media.presencepioneers.org to sign up today. Yeah, I think we're living that danger right now. Uh, it's, it's not as severe as, say, 1914, but and it's not as severe as 1939. But we're living that danger right now. If, if you took your cues from the early 2000s and our national prosperity and relative quiet, it was a quiet in the George W. Bush years post 9-11. You 9-11 know, was a little bit of a shock to the system, but it wasn't powerful enough to have an enduring uh, effect on our psyches. And so we kind of forgot about it. And it was easy to go positive in the later Bush years, even in the economic trouble, it meant a couple less coffees. It wasn't, a, it wasn't the kind of economic trouble that crushes a nation. And then into the President Obama years, there was some conflict, but, 
but it was relative peace and calm. It was easy in those years to trumpet a positivity hope narrative because you could look at the relatively small amount of trouble and go, no, this is a moment, glory's ahead. And you could say that credibly and people would be like, we, we want that. And so it plays right to what we want. It's like, yes, I, I want to be positive about my future. I don't like my job. I'm not sure I like my wife. My kids aren't going the way that I thought. I need something to help me get out of the, the frustration of today and get into believing tomorrow will be better than today. So yes. So there will always be an audience for that message. But the problem is then suddenly a, a global pandemic hits. Well, the problem is, I mean, the problem is self-evident in January 1st, the number of 2020 is going to be the best year yet. Messages were everywhere. That positivity <laughs> message was, was like on steroids January 1st. 2020 vision. We can see the future and it's glorious. Revival. This is the year of revival. This is the year of amazing. This is the year of blessing. And then March hits and everyone's going, what? And so, the, so then when March hits, already the narrative is struggling. And then June hits and the racial conflicts. And suddenly the racial conflicts... The hope message had little to say related to the drowning out of a justice message that some folks weren't prepared to answer. I, I heard some of the answers. Their answers weren't awesome because, and they didn't, ha they didn't have great answers because where they've been living, you know, coming up to January 1st, 2020, you, you live in a message that works in your moment. It works in your moment, your cultural moment, but is your message preparing you, the message you're preaching? Is it preparing you to answer the cultural moment that you can't see? That's right around the corner that you're presuming isn't coming because your message is saying that it's not. And so now we're in racial crisis, serious racial conflict, serious. There's rioting in the streets. There's real anger and a real, like the black church is looking at us going, do you guys have an answer at all that's going to at all reflect my pain? Or are you going to keep saying it's awesome? And so, so there's now it's not even speaking into our cultural moment and the culture, broader cultural context. Our brothers and sisters are looking at us going, you got something to say that's going to help me at all that sounds like the Bible and Jesus and justice? And are you going to speak to oppression at all? Or are you just going to tell me that tomorrow is going to be awesome when, when I've been, I, I, I kind of hope that was true, but I'm not seeing it in my situation. But then just past the racial conflict that was already like, wow, what a year. Now we're hitting this collision of ideological conflict related to Trump, you know, being a fascist. And, uh, and if, you, if you buy into President Trump, you're a Nazi. Therefore, I am justified to say whatever I want about you. And I'm actually justified to do whatever I want to you. And there's a, there's a ratcheting up of conflict related to the polarization of our nation. And now it's, now, now it's beyond the black church. Now... There's a whole swath of young Christians that are going, does anyone have an answer for what's coming at us? And I can't, I don't want January 1st rhetoric of the more and the better and the bigger and the awesome. I actually want an answer for the polarized nation I live in, the economic distress that's in front of us, the racial conflict that seems unsolvable, the intractable uh, system that seems to be oppressing my brothers in the midst of a global pandemic nobody saw coming. That's really shifted the context. Do you have anything to say to me? Says the 21 year old. So I'm, I know that's a long answer to your question, yeah. but, uh, but I'm going to restate your question again. The question is why can't we just, what's the danger of believing that it's going to get better and hope? Isn't that just, isn't that good? 
And it's like, sure, it's good until it's not good. Right. <laughs> and then so suddenly, true. and suddenly you don't have anything to say and, it, and somebody else will. Yeah. And so think about the national voices right now. The national voices by and large are not who they were January 1st. Yeah. It's whoever is trying to rush to the pulpit to give a, a biblical answer from their perspective and they're coming from those streams, but but the question is, where were we living before everything came crashing in like it is right now? And do we believe this is as bad as it gets? Right. That those are these are important questions. Is this Fair. as bad as it gets? And so we got to figure out the, the you know the phrase everyone's saying: Is this the new normal? And do I adjust? And do I adjust my message accordingly? Hmm. Or is this the beginning? Uh, this is not the new normal. Actually, something beyond this is coming. This is our tip off. I may not have a message now, but there's still time. And I can, I can adjust course, get before the Lord, get in the word. I can have something to say when this goes to its next phase. Yeah. And again, it just depends on where you're at. Is there a next phase or is this going to pass away and suddenly we're back to prosperity again? Right. Well, my next question would be, how do we adjust course? Which I'm guessing is why you wrote the book. <laughs> but give us, I mean, give us some insight. How do we prepare? How do we live in that tension of it's going to get better, it's going to get worse at the same time, <laughs> you know, we're moving forward. How do we even, you know, live our lives? Like, what are some things we need to do as, as you know, a lot of intercessors and worshipers are watching this, but just as believers, you know, how, how, how do we need to be thinking right now? How do we need to be shifting and adjusting our lives right now? You know, uh, beyond the book, uh, though I, that is why I wrote the book. So I'll answer beyond the book. Beyond the book, I would ask you a question. How do we define the word better? When we, when we said we were wanting to be filled with hope that things would get better and better, what was our definition of better? What is now our definition of better? Has our definition of better changed because of the context? I mean, there is power in one sense in just going after the word and saying what it says and it might not be popular in the season that you're saying it, but it's likely history will catch up to you. And so if your definition of better is biblical, it doesn't matter if the American public and the American culture that has its own definition of better. Did our definitions of better fit too tightly with American cultural definitions of better? Or were we biblical in what better is? And so I think in terms of adjusting course, this is a good moment to stop and go, wait, what did I think and what did we mean when we said things were getting better? And now that we're here, what do we think is going to happen next in light of kind of adjusting some of my definitions? Where was I not biblical? Hmm. I, think, I think a healthy moment of introspection and repentance were necessary to align ourselves with where we missed it. If we do hubris, if we do just kind of brazen, just kind of double down, Tom, no, I know I'm right. Mm. I don't care what what today says. I'm, and I think, I think there's a little bless God. We're going. We're doing this thing. You know, the, the in one sense, this this cultural moment that we're in, the pressure, economic, sociological, political, it's it's hitting us on every angle, and you're seeing it cause either healthy introspection, healthy meaning, okay, Lord, what do you have to say? I'm listening. I think I missed it. I'm willing to acknowledge it. I'm willing to repent. I want to hear you. I want to know your word. I need help. I need help. But then on the flip side, there's the double down, which you're seeing this cultural moment and the pressure of it amplify. 
if there was Christian nationalism before, it's gone to another level. If there was Christian positivism before, it's gone to another level. It's like I'm watching stuff on both sides of the national conversation from the church side because the church is all I have to answer for. I can't answer for the non-Christian, but I can answer for my friends, my family, my brothers, my sisters. I'm looking at my brothers and sisters. I don't want to be, I'm not trying to do it with a critical eye. I'm not even calling them to repent, but I am noticing that they're not. I'm noticing that the pressure is amplifying something that I don't know is helpful. And so the best I can do is stop talking about them. And the best I can do to adjust course is to talk to the Lord about me mm. and repent. And it doesn't even matter. Like, like this is a hypothetical. I don't even think this or believe this, but let's say I was a hundred percent right about what today was going to be. And I a hundred percent prepared for it. And therefore I have the hundred percent awesome message for the body of Christ today. None of that is true. Obviously, even then the right answer would be, okay, Lord, you and me for a moment. Mm. You and me, let's talk about me. Let's talk about in a healthy way, without condemnation. Tell me where I missed it. Tell me where I came short. Tell me where I hadn't thought through my definitions and was a bit presumptuous or naive. And Lord, I want to repent. I think to me, the word of the Lord for the hour is repent, not they need to or stop doing what you're doing or yeah. boo Biden or yay Trump or boo Trump and yay Biden. Right. None of that matters to me. Repent is what matters to me most. Mm, that's good. I want to, uh, I was flipping through your book here. And uh, like I said, I haven't gotten to read it yet, but I, I caught the header that said experiencing the presence of God. This is later on in the chapter called Preparing the Next Generation. Yeah. You say to, to personally and frequently experience the presence of God solves a multitude of problems, big and small. Joy, restoration, healing, power all come to us through closeness with the one who's intimately near. And then later on, you said to pursue the presence of God is to pursue an internal breakthrough in one's own heart. So talk to me about that. What is, you know, I, I, obviously this is called the Presence Pioneers podcast. So we value the presence of God. Yes. I believe that's important. Maybe, maybe connect some dots between not just experiencing the presence of God because it's joyful and, and that's great and we love him, but how is that relevant to the times that we're living in and what we see as the future? How important is it going to be to be rooted in God's presence and in intimacy with him? You know, the, the funny thing about being, what you and I are, we are, uh, for lack of a better term in this hour of history, we are charismatic Christians. We are spirit-filled Christians. And the, the charge against the charismatic church, because you got the you got the Baptists, you got the Reformed guys, you got the Methodists. I mean, these are these are brothers that I, I know. It used to be theoretical to me when I was in my twenties, but forty-seven at the International House of Prayer for almost twenty years, you you meet. You just connect with lots of assemblies guys, lots of Baptist guys, lots of Reformed guys, and so on and so forth. And so much of the American church, apart from the charismatic church, was was formed by not the presence of God in one sense. Ironically, First Great Awakening is all presence. Second Great Awakening is all presence. But what comes after, because of the Puritans and, you know, after the Second Great Awakening, the Nazarenes, for example, were, were, were holiness movements that were born out of a reformed perspective on the Bible that, um, that, that uh, is very, this is going to sound weird. It's very new Testament in its focus, very new Testament government, very new Testament cultural engagement, very new Testament evangelism, the evangelical church of America. So it's not that they're not presence oriented. They're just very new Testament oriented. 
Because the New Testament, strangely, you would think it would be the opposite because the indwelling Holy Spirit, but the New Testament is strangely not, it doesn't have a lot of theology of presence. And so that's a, this is a big setup. The charismatic church over the years has been kind of charged as being the Old Testament people. But there's a reason for that. The, to build a theology of presence, you actually find a lot of it in the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament, particularly the, the ancient Hebrews, the ancient Hebrews were a presence-oriented people. Mm. And so you learn a lot by learning, getting into actually really digging out without charismatic bias, really trying to get into those passages. So I'm just, I'm actually, this is actually an aside for me to you as a, per, as a man, I can tell you're a man who loves the word and loves the presence, and there's gold to be mined in Leviticus, for example, that right. a charismatic Christian might not think to look. But, uh, but there's gold to be mined as it relates to even understanding Genesis and presence, the burnt offering, what that was. Um, because, because why? Because the Old Testament, I call it priestly theology. That's what the Pentateuch is, the first five books of the Bible. They're, they're priestly theology. Isaiah was a priest who quoted the Pentateuch extensively because it's, it's priestly theology. And priestly theology was very different than ancient theology, ancient conceptions of God. Because the ancient world, just for example, the ancient world saw the world as being influenced and driven by demons. Demons were the primary drivers of whether you had crops or not, whether life worked or not, and you had to please the gods, you had to please the demons, because they were kind of in control of world affairs. Moses comes with priestly theology and presence theology and changes the conversation. He says, no, the world's not primarily driven by demonic forces driving action. The world is actually primarily driven by human beings driving action. The stewardship God gives Adam establishes man as stewards that drive action on the planet. And much of what happens related to demonic power or presence is related to human response. That is an act that changed the game in the ancient world when Moses goes, no, it's, it's humans. Humans defile the place of God's presence. Therefore, there's a cleansing that's necessary by blood in order to cleanse the place of his dwelling and allow for his presence to remain. He has all that kind of detail stuff. Mm. There's, there's that kind of, so, so the, but the big point is the Old Testament isn't what we think it is related to presence. It establishes human responsibility related to external presence. I'm not talking about the indwelling Holy Spirit. Human responsibility and human actions and sin and defiling actions related to sin, holiness, a life of holiness, all of that in the Old Testament kind of shapes an, uh, uh, an understanding of how the presence works. Because, because men in the Old Testament, the, the, the garden and onward, they said, we don't want you here, God. We don't want you here. We want you to go elsewhere because we don't want your presence, because we don't want your leadership. We don't want your accountability. We don't want to answer to you. We want the world you made to be our world, not yours, and we want it on our terms. That's the fall of man. The world you made for us, we want it to be ours, not yours, and we don't want to answer to you related to this world. So men and God's humility, when there's a conflict between God and man, God goes, I'll depart. I will take my presence, and I will depart. That's the humility of God is ridiculous. And so then you see in Genesis, men begin to do burnt offerings. Why? Burnt offerings, the sweet aroma, the fragrance. What was it? What was it? It was an acknowledgement of desire. And the burnt offering was man going, no, I don't know about them. I want you here. I want you here. I don't just want to know you from the word. I want you 
physically here. I want you present. I want you with me. Mm. I miss you. The burnt offering was a human acknowledgement of missing God. That's just a different way to think about presence, isn't it? Come on. I miss you. It's not just that I want to feel you, and it's not just that I want to experience you. So I get a little jazz in my heart, a little joy, as you said. No, I miss you. I want you here. And so Genesis 6, men begin to kill those men because they're saying, we don't want him here. There's two people on the earth in Genesis 6, the people that want God on the earth and the people that don't. And those are called the days of Noah, the days in which there was a group that want God on the planet and a group that doesn't. Matthew 24, as in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. Mm. There's going to be a people that want God on the earth and a people that don't. And in the days of Noah, the people that did not started killing the people that did. But here's the problem. Now, I'm going to skip ahead for a second. It's a long answer to your question, but great. I want to lay it out. Yeah. Genesis 11, you know, the, the, uh, in Genesis 9, 10, 11, it said, the Tower of Babel, the Tower of Babel is man wanting the benefits of presence without accountability. Mm. Now, here's, now, herein lies the human problem. Man wants the benefits of presence without the accountability, without the boundaries, without answering to God, without his, without his rule. And so that's what the Tower of Babel was. It's uh, because, you know, think about the house of Obed-Edom, when the Ark of the Covenant, which is the earthly seat of God's heavenly throne, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. The Ark was understood as the earthly footstool, one piece of furniture connected by Jacob's ladder to the heavenly throne. Presence is God is here. And presence is God resides. You who dwell between the cherubim, the psalmist said. The cherubim are underneath the sea of glass, God dwells, they understood, he dwells beneath the cherubim of the Ark of the Covenant, connected to where he dwells in heaven. So presence is different for the Old Testament Hebrew than how maybe we think about it. It is God dwells in a manifest, physical, present way God is here. And so therefore where his Ark was, boom, there's an explosion of blessing, an explosion of prosperity, an explosion of delight. And there, where there's presence, there is joy, there is, there is healing, there is life, there, is, there are so many benefits to presence. Yeah. And so here's the human tension from Genesis to today. Where the presence is, there is much benefit. What's driving our desire? How do we get more presence? That's the question that every spiritual believer is wanting. Not, in, not just internal Holy Spirit connection, exterior when we say as charismatics presence we really mean exterior experience mm. we want the room you know god to be in the room not just yeah. in our hearts yeah and so because when god's in the room we watch people get set free of demons we watch people with depression suddenly come alive we watch the guy with the with the broken leg suddenly it straightens you know you've seen crazy things i've seen crazy things yeah that's what we mean but there's two really critical questions when it comes to presence question number one what does it take in terms of how we position ourselves before God to touch more of his presence? And what are we after in relationship to that presence? Is, is there that Old Testament saint, you know, Enoch, who just walked with God and was no more, that the burnt offering in his day was connected to, I miss you. There was a day when you dwelt amongst men, and there will be a day when you dwell, dwell amongst men again. But between here and there, can I dwell with you? Can I be with you? interior breakthrough is that beatitudes transformation of the heart where what we want and why we want it becomes less about ourselves and more genuinely about love and more genuinely about an ache for him and more genuinely about a desire and a longing for him because we love him and we want to be with him 
And the presence associated with that is so sweet and what's produced, the fruit of that is so powerful. The, in one sense, we, we want the presence in an intimate sense more than sometimes you know, the other stuff. And so I'll say this one last thing. The thing that shifted me, that I, was all, I come from upstate New York, so I'm a Charles Finney guy. I always wanted Jonathan Edwards, Charles Finney. My, oldest, my youngest daughter is named Finney. I mean, I have a Finney mm-hmm. story connected to my life. I want that kind of eyes of Finney, conviction of sin, deep repentance, courtrooms are empty, bars are empty. I mean, I want that. I want that badly. Yeah. That season of refreshing that shifts a region yeah. and brings revival. I want that. But, but at a certain point, I started getting connected to Teresa of Avila and Bernard of Clairvaux and Thomas Merton. And I was introduced to a new possibility that no one ever told me about. And as potent as revival on the outside was, they're testifying in their experience of a revival on the inside. And the revival on the inside was of a potency that shifted nations and empires. I mean, Bernard of Clairvaux became the most powerful man in his generation, but all he wanted to do was cry, read the Song of Solomon, and write about it. And, but his interior breakthrough, that revival on the inside was so powerful, they go, kings, seek your counsel. Everybody waits till you till you speak. You just should become the Pope. Because I want to become the Pope. I want to read Song of Solomon. I want to cry. I want to write about it. They go, well, if you're not the Pope, it doesn't make any sense. He goes, well, take my main disciple. And they do. <laughs> they make his number one disciple, the Pope, one of the most powerful men in all of Europe in that generation. Bernard of Clairvaux sets him into place. And it's because that revival on the inside. That possibility of what's available if we'll go after the Lord on the interior. We want presence exterior, but we also want a a greater experience of what's possible in the interior. Mm -hmm. We have barely begun to touch what's possible related to the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so I want it all. Yeah. But but I want it all, you know, as you get older, it's like I used to want it because of adventure and excitement. Now I want it because of love. I want it because I miss it. Come on. And that's not all that motivates me, and I'm not perfect in that. I'm broken in that. But it is more about that for me than it was in my younger years. I just, I I see the Old Testament saints and their longing, that burnt offering of desire. Just come and be with me, Lord. I don't know what everybody else is doing right now, but I want you with me in a really powerful way. You are in me. I want you with me too. Yes. And so I want all that. So good. So good. That was really long. Uh, No, that's so great. (laughs) I love it that those offerings being an expression of our desire that we miss, we miss you, God. We want you, we want you here with us, and uh, and so that that would be in our hearts as well. So good. Well, David, is is there anything else you'd like to share with anybody that might be tuning in? And then I'd love for you to just say a prayer for people as well. I'm just thankful to you. I mean, I just threw a lot out there, intense, <laughs> beautiful, and yeah. presence, and I mean, we just covered. We covered a lot and it was so, intense. So. It was intense. Thank you. So good. Yeah, of course. <laughs> of course. Well, just just pray pray for everybody that tunes in that we would just have that ache and that longing in our hearts and that we would just be, you know, positioned for what's coming and what, what's ahead, you know, in the earth. Heavenly Father, in the midst of the storm and uncertainty and trouble, give us the greatest gift. Give us the gift of hunger. Give us the gift of longing, that interior ache that only you can make happen that only you can spark. I'm asking, Lord, that you would, for every listener, for everyone that, that, that got into this because of you, Jesus, because of more of you, and 
to be with you. I'm asking that that cry to be with you would just dominate our soul. That the, that the narratives, the conversations of the hour would not drown us. That we wouldn't get drowned in the arguments and the conflicts and the polarized opinions. God, in an hour in which amplified love of opinion is drowning every conversation, I'm asking that you would do something stronger and deeper and more beautiful on the inside, that you would cause us, as only you can, to ache and to long and to desire. Awaken a hunger for you. That is your greatest gift to us. In an hour like this, but in any hour, we want that. So God, I'm asking, release it in the name of Jesus. Right now, to the listener, that this is giving language to something. God, I'm asking, recalibrate and realign that listener right now. That, uh, that's a little burnt out, a little weary, right now, arrest their heart with a hunger that only you can activate. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm. Yes, Lord, amen. Awesome. David, thank you so much for being on. Thank you for having me. Yeah, everybody, go oh, it wasn't get... too intense. Say what? <laughs> Hope I wasn't too intense. It wasn't too intense. You named your book The Nation's Rage. It's pretty intense. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Yeah, yeah. But everybody go get the book. It's so good. I know that there's a lot more, you know, just so much revelation that David you carry and, and your history in the Lord and it, your voice is so helpful for right now. And so everybody go get a copy of that book and we'll be sure to include a link in the show notes so you guys can do that. And again, everybody, thank you so much for tuning in to the episode today. If you've enjoyed this or if it's been helpful to you, please share this, if you would, on social media. Send it to your friends or community or people you think that would benefit from this. That uh, really helps us get the word out and these messages out, which we think are very important. If you're on YouTube, give us a little thumbs up. If you're on Apple, give us a rating or a review on our podcast. All those things help the algorithms so more people see this and uh, these messages get out. Hopefully more people will be praying and Jesus will ultimately be glorified through all of this. And don't forget God's presence changes everything.